I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on April 25th, 2021. Episode 15, Race Relations in the United States. Race Baiting for Political Power. I would be remiss if I did not start this episode acknowledging the guilty verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial. I start with this most recent news because there are some very important things to understand about any jury trial, and this one became, and remains, the left's touchstone for claims of systemic racism in policing and elsewhere embedded throughout the American system. From the evidence I heard, I still do not see proof beyond a reasonable doubt of guilt, but I was not on the jury, and I did not listen to every word of testimony or review all submitted evidence. Our system is set up to allow only those selected as jurors to be presented for consideration with the evidence and to attempt to reach a decision. I do worry that fear motivated this jury. A review of who the jurors were and that all of them admitted to being familiar in some way with the incident that led to these charges makes it hard to believe they could, since they are human, totally separate that knowledge from what they learned at trial or separate what all of us were shown day in and day out in terms of the riots and violence that broke out after the incident that led to the death of George Floyd. That the judge in this case did not fully sequester the jury or transfer venue to another location are issues that will almost certainly be raised on appeal. The fact that a video not only existed but was broadcast repeatedly online and a news broadcast worldwide may have uncovered a flaw in our system as well one that was capitalized on by the left, of allowing public figures, wrongly and inappropriately in my opinion, to pronounce Derek Chauvin guilty before the trial even began, and without any of those making such statements having evaluated all the evidence. Innocent until proven guilty is a concept we are losing in our system of justice, as more and more people view themselves as judge and jury based on only partial evidence, usually video evidence, without ever considering what may have happened before and after someone decided to press record on a phone. What is missing from this trial, and missing entirely from any of the reported evidence, is that race had anything to do with the decisions made by Derek Chauvin. Despite that lack of any reason to believe race was a motivating factor in his conduct, and the lack of any allegations race played any role at all in this incident, the case is still one being used to claim its proof of systemic racism. And this is why today's topic is so important. We are being intentionally pitted against one another. 
We are being being intentionally divided by race, not by our own choices, but by the manipulation of those who seek to use this kind of division, both to keep their own power and to control the rest of us. Division is how tyrannical governments control citizens. Rather than the class division of Karl Marx, the left has realized that if it can continue to buy despite race and to promote false theories like critical race theory that proclaims every white person guilty of racism based solely on skin color, it can build a society where they remain in power and govern as an elite class to the detriment of the rest of us in our country. But what is the real history of race relations in America? And why are we allowing one side of the political spectrum to try to convince us that such relations are no better than they were in the days of slavery and Jim Crow laws? The facts simply do not support these claims. And no matter how many times government officials, Black Lives Matter activists, white elite colleges, and rich white kids repeat this lie, it does not make it true. An earlier episode discussed some of these issues briefly, but it's time to figure out why race relations today are so much more strained than they were just a short time ago. The country cannot escape its history, and no one is trying to erase or pretend that slavery did not exist or that it was not abhorrent. Quite the opposite. This is an understanding and fact upon which nearly all of us can agree. But contrary to modern assertions that America is somehow unique in her history with slavery, slavery is a scar on humanity itself. The Greeks had slaves, the Romans had slaves, with estimates that up to 25% of the Roman Empire's population was enslaved. The Mongols had slaves, the Vikings had slaves, the Middle Ages had a robust European slave trade, the Muslims had slaves, the African continent had slaves, the South American countries had slaves, and there are still areas where slavery continues to exist today. Slavery was often the result of warring factions with the victor taking captures from the defeated tribe or nation and enslaving those people. In terms of the global slave trade and the specific enslavement of those from the African continent, the largest percentage of those actually ended up in what is now Brazil. And into this century, tens of thousands of Brazilians are still considered to be working in slave conditions in that country. In terms of identifying the possible hub of African slavery, Zanzibar is often considered to have had the most slaves pass through its port, with an estimate that in the 19th century, as many as 11 to 18 million black African slaves went from that port to areas in the Middle East and Europe, and an estimated 9.4 to 12 million made it to the Americas, to include not only what is now the United States, but other countries in North and South America. The Omani Arabs are thought responsible for most of the slave trade of this period, but it cannot be overlooked that the enslavement of nearly all of these people was done by other black Africans. The point of this information is the United States does not stand alone as some creator or enabler of slavery. Rather, the civilization of man has guilt to go around the globe on this one, Nor was the United States the last place to end slavery. As mentioned, slavery continues in some areas of Africa to this day and in some other pockets around the world. So why are so many now attempting to paint our country as uniquely racist and more responsible for this inhumane practice than any other? Ironically, the thing upon which this claim is based is the fact that our founding documents ran counter to the idea of slavery. But shouldn't that be a positive? Not if you ask those who seek now to reinvigorate racial division for their own purposes. For if a people is happy and unified and engaging with other people not based on the color of our skin, we may not buy into the blatantly false idea that our systems need total reform. And that it is the apparent goal now of America's left to tear down America and rebuild it as some socialist utopia, it is not for racial equality or justice they seek to destroy our foundation, but for the exact opposite. 
From the Declaration of Independence to the United States Constitution to the Bill of Rights that was added to it and the post-Civil War amendments, there is nothing racist in our system. Let's take a look at those documents. Perhaps the most known words from the Declaration of Independence include the following. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the document goes on, and in pertinent part makes this recognition. All experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Such was slavery. It was an evil that was suffered until it could no longer be suffered, and though not abolished with the Declaration of Independence or even the ratification of the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we did, as a nation, end the suffering of slaves, and we did so by improving our system, by working within it, to amend the Constitution to add the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The 13th Amendment abolishes slavery and involuntary servitude within the United States. The 14th Amendment guarantees for all persons born or naturalized in the United States due process and equal protection under the laws. And the 15th Amendment guarantees that the right to vote cannot be denied to any person based on race, color, or prior condition of servitude. These, are the, these amendments are the way the country lived up to its founding promises. It is true that the original document's provision regarding calculating representation in the House of Representatives was based on a counting of free persons, and then only three-fifths for every other person. But it is important to keep in mind that this was, itself, not a racial division, as there were free black persons who were counted as full persons for representation purposes. But it is even more important to understand that this, too, was changed by the post-Civil War amendments. Such amendments are the undoing of the evil that was slavery, and the undoing of those evils with which a nation and the world had suffered for so long is not something that can be complete, completed instantaneously. These were the first steps that had to be taken. It would then take approximately a hundred years to slowly undo the lack of equality found in many laws, and the attempts by many to try to avoid this change are also not proud parts of our American history. But the founding principles and the expanded promises of them that occurred during this period got the country through slavery, Jim Crow's separate but equal, and into the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. From the 1940s to the 1960s, further change was afoot in the United States. Though freed from slavery, disparate treatment continued. Before getting into all the changes made during this period of American history, it's important to note that the push for equal rights was undertaken and successful by operating in a mostly nonviolent way. The fact that these kinds of legal changes could be accomplished without violence is, at least in large part, a credit to the very system that today's left seeks to tear down. It is due to the rights recognized and protected at our founding, the right to peaceably protest, to petition your government with grievances, to free speech and the like, that the civil rights movement could take place and effect change. In 1948, President Truman stopped segregation in the U.S. military, recognizing that men and women of all races contribute to a functioning military, and did so notably during World War II. Then six years later, the Supreme Court got the chance, in Brown v. Board of Education, to undo a prior court's error in believing that separate but equal could actually provide equality of access and opportunity in education. Through the 1950s, citizens are taking action to bring attention to the inequality that still existed. From marches to sit-ins to legislative changes, the country was, through its existing systems, adjusting to become the more perfect union envisioned by our founders. Activists like Martin Luther King Jr., 
rose to national prominence with a clear message, just a desire to be judged by the content of his character rather than the color of his skin. And legal changes at this point are making that the law across the land. From protection for voting to anti-discrimination laws related to public accommodations and employment, the country is using the legislative and executive power of state and federal governments to put the guarantees embodied in the U.S. Constitution into real practice. Martin Luther King Jr. understood that was the goal, not to alter the underpendings and foundations of this exceptional country, but to bring its dreams to fruition. In his I Have a Dream speech, he declared as much. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. King viewed this creed as just and right. He did not seek to destroy it and rebuild new founding principles, as he saw the country for what it was, a beacon of hope and freedom. The Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, all of our legal standards and provisions say just one thing. Everyone has equal protection under the law. But that is not what we are hearing today from the left. Instead, the left has adopted the lie that no progress has been achieved on the front of racial equality. This claim, shockingly believed by many, ignores the obvious fact that that is not the case. We have had a black president, black Supreme Court justices, black legislators at both the state and federal level, black CEOs, black entertainers, presently a black vice president, and more. But many would rather not view this and the many legal changes guaranteeing equal opportunity as proof of progress in race relations and in the country's promise of equality. But why? Because to sell the lie of systemic racism creates power for those peddling it. Even as the loudest voices on this issue have achieved financial and other success in this supposedly racist country, they seek to withhold that opportunity for so many. Harvard professor Derek Bell, credited as one of the, one of the creators of critical race theory, Again, that theory that all white people are inherently racist, and since we were founded by white men and are still a majority white population, the whole country is racist, made the statement in the early 1990s that there had been no progress for blacks in America since 1865. This claim is ludicrous and false, but it didn't stop many from grabbing onto it and running with it full throttle. And it is blatantly fraudulent statements like that that form the underpinnings of today's push to accept critical race theory and its lie of systemic racism as an incontrovertible truth. It is interesting that the founders of things like critical race theory now make their living at very high prices, obtaining very high incomes, by offering services like racial sensitivity training, giving speeches to tell us how bad our country is, providing business consulting on diversity, and the like. If you think the move to paint the country as racist isn't motivated by these individuals' own self-interest, then you may not want to hear the rest of the information in this episode. Facts matter. When a claim or theory is based on a false premise, the entire theory fails. Just Professor Bell's situation alone is enlightening. Nothing's changed since 1865, according to him, but he's a tenured Harvard, prof- Harvard professor. But in 1865, blacks were not admitted as students at Harvard, and they surely weren't hired as professors. Those like Professor Bell know a lot has changed, and for the better. These individuals don't want the colorblind and just society promised in our founding documents, because a colorblind society would judge them on their merits and what they actually offer to society, and they don't offer much but anger and division. They are trading and profiting on their race, the same race they want all of us to believe is holding them back. And other white elitists are all too willing to trade on the race of them, too. At least for right now, the target of the left and its race baiters is the police, and the propaganda of those wanting to redivide us along racial lines is working. 
When asked how many unarmed black men were shot by police, 44% of those responding who identified themselves as liberal or very liberal believed that about 1,000 unarmed men are killed in a given year by police. The actual number is typically less than 20 or 30 in most years. These same respondents believe that the majority of those killed by police were, in fact, black. The truth is that only about 25% of such deaths were of black individuals. Admittedly, that is more than the percentage of the black population in the country, but it is still not anywhere near the majority of those who have fatal encounters with police. And the real reason the number is higher than the representation in the population has to do with the fact that black Americans have far more interactions with police due to statistically higher involvement in criminal activity. For example, in 2019, black Americans committed 27.4% of all crimes and more than 50% of all homicides. What the left, BLM, and others should be doing is not exaggerating the facts to sell the lie of a racist system, but engaging in discussions about why it may be that more black Americans find themselves in encounters with police in the first place. But that is not what happens, and it's certainly not what's happening. An incident occurs video often exists, and the normal suspects, the likes of Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, and Ben Crump. Ben Crump suspiciously shows up, almost instantaneously as the attorney for the family, after any such incident. And they provide incorrect information and anger, and nothing else. But this anger never appears directed at the crime levels in these very same communities, or the harm that would be caused to them with less or less effective policing. The anger is targeting the system. The fact that they do not turn their efforts this direction is further evidence that the intent is not to better black lives, but to cover up the failures of leftist policies that have left many groups in America worse off and to increase their own profit and power. The most recent incident involving the Columbus, Ohio police shooting of Micaiah Bryant while she was actively attempting to stab another teenager is indicative of this reality. Those pushing anti-racism and critical race theory and asking that police departments be defunded do not care about black lives. They care about power. No one is asking after the death of Micaiah Bryant why she was in foster care and not at home with her mother. There's also been no mention of any father. What led this teenage girl to think it was acceptable to resort to violence when dealing with this other teenager? And what about the thousands of black Americans killed every year, most likely by other black people? If you want to save black lives, those are the questions to be asking. And those lives, so many more lost community violence, are the lives our police officers struggle to save every day. The systemic racist propaganda mirrors the same messaging strategy of so many tyrannical movements, fear. Just as with many COVID-19 policies, fear equals control. Scare black Americans into believing they are not playing on an equal playing field, that every encounter with police may be fatal, Scare whites that no matter what they do, they will always be racist and must fear doing anything that could be characterized as such. Scare police into avoiding interactions with actual criminals that may go badly. Fear, fear, and more fear. With this fear, control over the actions of all of us can be, or at least is sought to be, achieved. This same fear was used by those who opposed ending slavery and who opposed ending segregation. Place fear of the other race in the minds of the people. It is the same tactic, and by the same party, the Democrats. The Democrats are the party of slavery, Jim Crow, and now what can only be described as the modern-day liberal plantation. Convince minorities that their very lives are in jeopardy under the other party's policies, that the other party is full of racist white supremacists with no evidence of that fact, and you control them into continuing to accept your power over them. The added problem is that we have failed to educate our younger generations to think for themselves, so these fear tactics and the creation of unjustified anger to fuel cries for change are working. 
And here are some examples of how truly ridiculous the claims of systemic racism have gotten, such that it's amazing anyone buys into the messaging. According to some UCLA students, automatic soap dispensers are systemically racist because the dispenser requires minorities to show the palms of their hands to dispense the soap because surely dispensers don't recognize darker skin tones. This is, of course, not true. Here again, the party of science has no idea how these dispensers work, which is by using infrared sensors that do, in fact, pick up all skin colors. Representative Ayanna Presley has claimed that you can't be anti-racist if you don't support student debt cancellation, but she fails to explain the connection between race and student debt. Actor Hank Azaria, who voiced the Simpsons character Apu, is now apologizing for his betrayal of this character. Apu was an Indian convenience store owner in the show, and his character, like all of the show's characters, drew comedy from stereotypes. You certainly don't hear anyone screaming that the stereotype of Homer Simpson as a dumb, fat, white dad is wrong. Apparently, a Seattle-Washington ordinance requiring bicyclists to wear helmets is also racist. It seems that more black people receive citations for not wearing helmets, so the law must be being applied in some racist manner by the police. Of course, no one thought to consider statistically whether black bike riders were failing to wear helmets at a disproportionate rate. And of course, the argument on this issue, as with all of them, became even more coherent as the explanation for claiming racism went from white supremacist cops looking for black bicyclists without helmets to the high cost of helmets that black people simply couldn't afford. It is this constant assumption by the left that black Americans cannot care for themselves that should be the real target of any claimed continuing embedded racism. The list of evidence of racism or claimed racism doesn't end with soap, dispensers, helmet laws, or police shootings where there's no evidence of racial motive. The list is sadly an endless. Anything and everything today is proof of racism. The problem is again one of ignorance that allows people to accept these kinds of blatantly false claims. This ignorance equates disparate outcome with inequality and fails to recognize the great success of minorities in America. The real racists are those who have, since slavery, endorsed, promoted, and pushed policies that send the message that minorities cannot take care of themselves, that they have no personal responsibility for their conditions or care, and that the government must take care of them. These policies have led to higher rates of single mothers, absentee fathers, criminal behavior, educational problems, and more in minority communities. The unfortunate truth is that leftist policies, like affirmative action, have continued to send the message that minorities are somehow lesser, that they need government assistance to succeed. When minorities do not fall victim to the behaviors actually promoted by policies of the left, they do just as well as the rest of us. And they do better here than anywhere else in the world. It is hard to comprehend how we could be a systemically racist country with greater race issues than any other when our minority citizens are so successful. Black Americans are economically better off than these minorities are in other parts of the world. In addition, when comparing incomes by race in this country, average incomes demonstrate that Asian Americans have the highest average income, whites the second highest, then black Americans, and then those of Hispanic or Latino descent. Far from some continuing effects from slavery or white privilege, this shows that it is not white supremacy that is in control, as whites are less financially successful than Asians nor are blacks at the bottom, with Hispanics making less than they do. Now what these kinds of group averages show are just that, averages. As within each of these groups, there are far more successful individuals, and there are those who are struggling. That further supports that it's not race that is the determining factor, nor is there some secret structure of white control over minorities. So why does the left sow this lie to create discord and division? It keeps them in power. It keeps them in control of populations. 
So to go back to the statement I just made, if there is a secret structure of control, it is by the left. Instead of stirring people to anger to say their names of the very small number of unarmed black men killed during encounters with police, it would be far more beneficial to exemplify successful black men and women, to highlight successes of all Americans of any color, and to focus on the lives lost at the hands of each other due to poor crime policies, anger-invoking race-baiting, and the failures of our communities. But turning to address these issues serves to bring us together and not tear us apart. And we are easier to conquer when divided. United and prosperous people need less government. Karl Marx knew this, and today's Marxists from BLM to the members of our government now supporting socialist and Marxist ideologies ideologies, know this is the case as well. That is why they must describe everything as based on race. Convincing us we are not allies but enemies of one another sows discord and creates cries for government action. And policing is the target du jour. The fraud of police racism is today's battle cry. But why do so many, especially on the left, believe there is a real epidemic of unarmed black men shot by police? Well, because that's all the mainstream media tells them. But here are some stories you likely didn't hear. In 2013, John Gear, a kitchen remodeler, was shot by Fairfax County, Virginia police after they responded to a domestic call where Gear's wife claimed he was throwing her property out of the home. After being coaxed out of his home by a law enforcement negotiator, he was shot. An investigation confirmed he was shot with his hands in the air, as directed, and that he was unarmed. John Gear was white. In July of 2015, unarmed 19-year-old Zachary Hammond, who was white, was fatally shot by police in South Carolina during what appeared to be a routine traffic stop. It's still unclear what went wrong. And in August 2016 in Dallas, Tony Tempa, an individual who was reportedly off his medication for schizophrenia and depression and was acting erratically, was pinned to the ground by an officer for almost 14 minutes with video and audio where comments by the officers were made after he appeared to have fallen asleep that said things like, in joking fashion, five more minutes, mom. Tempa died. Tempa, a white male, had made the 911 call himself seeking help. His cause of death was determined a homicide resulting from sudden cardiac death, toxic effects of cocaine, and physiological stress associated with physical restraint in a story eerily similar to George Floyd's. In early 2020, a white man was shot by a black police officer in a train station in Chicago, and the video that accompanied that shooting is no less shocking than any we see played over and over again of just the reverse situation from a racial perspective. On May 20, 2020, just five days prior to the George Floyd incident, an officer with the Phoenix, Arizona Police Department shot and killed Ryan Whitaker while responding to a domestic disturbance call. Mr. Whitaker was white and unarmed. Earlier this month, Portland, Oregon police shot a white man, but his race was only disclosed by the media when, after reporting police had fairly shot someone, assumptions the deceased man was black led to protesters beginning to congregate, such that his race was released so everyone could calm down and go home, which is what they did. In fact, a 2019 Michigan State University study, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, sought to investigate bias in police shooting incidents. But what they found was that if a bias does exist, it is an anti-white and not an anti-black bias. Simply stated, the news media does not report the shootings of unarmed white men. In fact, more than 30% of such incidents could not be found to be reported at all other than in actual crime and death statistics, with no news mention, and the others are typically reported only locally. These incidents of the shooting of white unarmed men by police is not an attempt to compare incidents, but to highlight the inaccuracy in any conclusion that there is some systemic bias against black Americans and black men specifically. There are bad police. 
and there are bad decisions that are made because an officer is in a dangerous position and in a split second must decide how to respond. And there are good police decisions that nevertheless end in tragedy. Law enforcement officers put their lives on the line for all of us every day, and they are bound to make bad decisions. None of this demonstrates any racial animus, and none of this provides evidence of any systemic problem. Given the number of total interactions between police and the public, the incidence of bad decisions and bad outcomes is remarkably low. Contrary to what you're being asked to believe, all too many black leaders, meaning leftist, self-proclaimed black leaders, use individual and isolated tragedy to push a fraud on the American public. This fraud should be obvious when you realize that truly remarkable leaders, like Senator Tim Scott, Dr. Ben Carson, Thomas Sowell, and others, are treated as outcasts and not representative of the black community. But strong, successful black leaders hurt the narrative. Why would we highlight them? It shows the opposite of what this movement is attempting to claim. That America is bad. That no black or brown people can succeed here because white privilege and racism prevail. Black Lives Matter is currently the most vocal to perpetuate this myth of American evil. An admittedly Marxist organization, the focus on race is not truly to address existing racial issues, but to divide. Where Karl Marx sought to divide By class to gain control, BLM seeks to divide by race. All the while, the organizers, founders, and those leading the charge with this and similar organizations make millions on the cultivated outrage of others. Perhaps longtime politicians joining this bandwagon are the most disingenuous. A long list of them now claiming that America is and always has been systemically racist. That that means its systems are racist. But each of these individuals has been part of the system, often for decades. That anyone can take their claims seriously is both disturbing and laughable. Here are just some of today's advocates for the destruction of America based on claims of its failed systems. Systems they've been in charge of. Systems that they could have used to fix these issues, if in fact they truly still existed. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi most recently thanked George Floyd for dying so that we could unmask the underlying system, systemic racism in America. Of course, Nancy Pelosi has been in Congress since 1987. Majority Leader in the Senate Chuck Schumer, in a speech on the Senate floor, similarly claimed, The racial disparities in our criminal justice system have been on full display. These disparities permeate not just the criminal justice system, but all of society. There are glaring racial disparities in health care and housing, racial disparities in income and in wealth, in the boardroom and at the ballot box, on our streets and in our schools. These disparities have been with us for a very long time. Well, of course, Chuck Schumer has also been with us for a very long time, having been in the Senate since 1999, and before that, he was in the House of Representatives from 1981 to 1999, and before that, he was a New York Assemblyman. Former First Lady Michelle Obama spends much of the time on her podcast now decrying the racism that exists in the country, essentially concluding that being black is a crime in America. This is coming from someone whose black husband was elected president twice, and who remains one of the most respected women in America, if polling is to be believed. Vice President Kamala Harris regularly bemoans systemic racism, despite her election to the position of vice president and her prior service in public office in California and as a U.S. senator. And President Biden sees the political opportunity of jumping on this bandwagon, too, despite the fact that he was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1972 and has served there as vice president for eight years and now as president, spanning nearly 50 years in positions in which he could have surely sought to address this widespread systemic racism, if it actually existed. And it's not just politicians at the federal level that demonstrate the insincerity of claimed systemic racism. Consider the most recent publicized police shootings, and look at who's in charge of most of the systems that govern those, cities and police departments. 
Breonna Taylor, Louisville, Kentucky, a city governed by Democrats since 1969. George Floyd and Dante Wright, Minneapolis, Minnesota, a city governed by Democrats since 1978. Jacob Blake, Kenosha, Wisconsin, a city essentially run by the same mayor for years and years. John Antaramian, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, was mayor from 1992 to 2008 and then re-elected in 2016. He's believed to be a Democrat, having publicly supported Democrat candidates, though the office itself is nonpartisan. And that is not to say any of these shootings were or were not proper under the circumstances, but they are the battle cry supporting claims of systemic racism, and I think it's important to ask, who do these people think control and run the systems they are now claiming are inherently racist? They do. And I don't even know what to say about Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who is simply a disgrace. Her time in the House started in 1991, 30 years ago. If Waters, Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, the Obamas, and others believe the system is racist, why haven't they done anything to fix it in all these years they were in control of it? What do these individuals get by repeating a lie of black men's lives being in danger every day at the hands of police? Well, they get to claim that the federal government must step in. They get to call for more centralized control of police, police procedures, and police training. They get more power, and they get more control. And who does that harm? It harms minority communities the most by a one-size-fits-all federal approach to law enforcement that causes less addressing of the particular needs of a particular community. And it makes members of these communities less trusting of and less willing to contact and assist police in reducing crimes in their neighborhood. Centralization rarely works. Allowing different states and different cities with different populations and different concerns to control things like policing provides better options for us all. It is interesting that we hear cries daily at this point that the entire American system needs reform based on statistically isolated events, which by definition means they are not systemic. Yet where are the cries for the black Americans killed every day in this country by common criminals? As previously touched upon, black Americans currently make up 13% of the U.S. population, but they are overrepresented when it comes to being arrested for several categories of crimes, and they are overrepresented as crime victims. The only way to address this issue is better and more policing, not less. In addition, with the exception of Asians, who are victimized more often by persons of another race, nearly all crime, particularly violent crime, is perpetrated on the victim by a member of the same race. Of those black Americans who are victims of violent crime, more than 70% of the time, the perpetrator is another black person. The same is essentially true for white Americans as well. This is not a racial problem. This is a crime problem. If black lives are the concern, then the only way to better protect them is to deal with the crime, not the police. Unfortunately, it is not just law enforcement under attack as systemically racist. All systems of government are now accepted by many as fundamentally racist, such that they should all ultimately be dismantled and rebuilt in a way that serves only to take more power from the people. And as with the lie of systemically racist police departments, the facts simply do not back up the claims of inherent racial inequality within America's other systems. Whether claims are of less educational opportunity, less representation in certain professions or positions, or less opportunity generally, the facts simply do not support them. The claims that nothing has improved since the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement rests on either intentional misrepresentation or ignorance. The proof claimed that black Americans remain a lesser class of citizens is that their representation in certain parts of life are not equal to their representation in the population. In other words, for society to be just and equal, if 13% of the population is black, that would mean that 13% of all lawyers, doctors, politicians, teachers, truck drivers, grocery store clerks, etc. should be black. 
This logic is just plain silly. It fails to take into account any choice of individuals. Of course, that should come as no surprise from self-proclaimed Marxists who do not value the individual. Race is one of many, many factors that can determine an individual's education, occupation, income, family life, and overall success. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics compiles the numbers of certain groups in certain positions. For some types of positions, a certain group may be over or underrepresented as compared with that group's presence in the general population. But that does not mean there is any racism involved. For example, this year's statistics show a number of admirable occupations in which blacks comprise a larger percentage of positions than their representation in the population. 14.7% of advertising and promotions managers are black. Does that mean that some of them should be let go to allow for more white or Hispanic representation in this field? 14.3% of education and child care administrators are black, 18.3% of social and community service managers are black, 19.8% of claims adjusters and appraisers are black, 14.5% of tax examiners and collectors, 14.8% computer network architects, 26.8% of child, family, and school social workers, 20.3% of healthcare social workers, 16.3% of television, video, and film camera operators and editors, 15.5% of dietitians and nutritionists, 18.5% of respiratory therapists, 16.2% of cardiovascular technicians, 16.3% of MRI technicians, 25.6% of licensed practical nurses, 32.9% of correctional officers and jailers, 23.9% of bill and account collectors, 16.6% of judges, magistrates, or other judicial workers, and I could go on. To be sure, by percent of the population, blacks are underrepresented in other positions, just as other races are overrepresented in some and underrepresented in others. But the same can be said of almost any attempt to categorize by averages or, or population, because race does not determine your occupation. You do. What this random sampling of the data shows is that blacks, as with all races, are able to obtain all kinds of jobs and thankfully are not denied them or assigned them to ensure equity in the resulting statistics. This is equality of opportunity. This is what our founders in America stands for. But what you make of that opportunity is ultimately up to you. A lot of what you end up doing as an occupation can be determined by your family, your location, your own interests, and it may have absolutely nothing to do with your race. As far as the U.S. system is concerned, it cannot legally have anything to do with your race. But these factual considerations cannot be discussed openly, as to question the mantra of systemic racism is to be racist. Racism is all around us. Just listen to how often you hear that. Underrepresentation, appropriation of racial culture and stereotypes are all further evidence of this proclaimed racism. Ignore that not too long ago we rightfully viewed cultural or racial appropriation as complementary. Even as small children we were, or at least should be taught, that copying is the sincerest form of flattery. That representation will never match the population when looking at a particular outcome is a given, because we are all individuals, defined by more than our own race, and having our own ability to make choices. And that stereotypes exist for all people, because there are similarities among groups, and we used to be able to laugh at ourselves, is also not a sign of racism, but of solidarity. We do have things in common with those who are most like us, and it's not always based on race that we affiliate with these groups. It is not a sign of discrimination. It is a mere fact of life. Today, however, it appears the only acceptable stereotypes are of white men. Al Bundy, Homer Simpson, Archie Bunker, certainly not positive portrayals of white men. We used to be able to laugh together about such stereotypes and caricatures. And it appears that it is now only white men who can suffer blatant discrimination. 
One need only look to some of the largest corporations or most elite schools to identify their racial quotas and attempts at diversity to do just the opposite of what BLM and our government officials claim they seek, equity and outcome, representation by population, and show that white men are being shut out of many opportunities based solely on their race and gender and for no other reason. The New York Times is the perfect example. The New York Times offers prestigious internships to those seeking to make their way in journalism. Of the Times' current 33 interns, only one is a white male. 27 of them are female. Interns at other leading papers, including the Wall Street Journal, are of similar composition. And a look at entering freshmen at the likes of Princeton, Harvard, and Yale shows a similar trend. This may be systemic racism, just not in the way the left would have you believe. And to swing the racist pendulum the other direction is no less horrible than when it was swung against black Americans. Equality is equality of opportunity, not equity of results, as we all have personal responsibility to make our way under the fair system that does exist in our country. And the claim that race relations are no better and that blacks are no more equal than at the time of our founding is also not supported by how we actually viewed ourselves in our racial situation just a short time ago. We were in this American experiment together until recent efforts sought to divide us. We used to understand that. From 1992, where concerns about racial relations did have a temporary spike related to the Rodney King incident, until relatively recently, polling showed that of those questioned, of all races, only 0-5% to in a given year would identify race relations or racism as the biggest problem facing America. But in November 2014, a Gallup poll showed that as many as 13% of Americans, again of all races, viewed it as a top issue. And prior to 1992, race had not been considered a top issue since the 1960s. The rise in concern for race relations resurfaced only when those on the left, many in the Obama administration, began slowly telling the tall tale of systemic American racism. It is interesting that feelings on race relations became less optimistic during President Obama's time in office, not more. Sitting in the most powerful position in the world, he started to weave a tale of racism that would look nothing like our country's actual history. Our view on race relations started to improve in the polls conducted in 2016 and 2018, despite claims that Trump's presidency is at least one cause of our current division. The optimistic view of ourselves and our neighbors came at a time when black unemployment was at its lowest and wages were on the rise. It was not until the 2020 election and the unfortunate incident of George Floyd that the left, though it had been slowly attempting to indoctrinate younger generations more quietly using critical race theory, finally went full-scale attack on America by latching onto this tragedy to forward its Marxist agenda. The left saw its chance and it went all in. If this narrative is not stopped, we will all suffer. By last year, polling uncovered that nearly two-thirds of Americans now viewed race relations as bad. Consider that when you look back just 30 years or so, when the majority of us didn't even see it as an issue, because we had come so very close to Martin Luther King Jr.'s colorblind society. What changed? Crime has gone down. The economy has gone up. Black Americans have reached the highest level of every industry, including being a two-term president of the United States. The Obamas are often identified as some of the most respected people. Oprah Winfrey is commonly in the top of lists identifying the richest Americans and so on. These are not anomalies. This is evidence that race does not prevent success in America. And that black Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, and yes, white Americans are all thriving in this amazing country we call America. As always, thank you for listening. 
The truth about racial equality in America has been buried under biased reporting and inconceivably malevolent attempts to grab power on the back of a lie that serves only to sever us from one another. So the next time you hear a story about a black man killed by police or a failing of the American system to live up to its creed of equality, make sure you consider the actual facts to determine for yourself whether race is even the issue or whether this is just another attempt to divide us in order to concentrate power in the ruling elite at the expense of us all. Alexis de Tocqueville knew that the situation between the races at our founding could not last as it was. He posited, If ever America undergoes great revolutions, they will be brought about by the presence of the black race on the soil of the United States. That is to say, they will owe their origin not to the equality, but to the inequality of conditions. De Tocqueville was right, but those revolutions came about through the Civil War and the Civil Civil Rights Movement, and the country came out the other side with systems that guarantee the equality envisioned from the start. Any further revolution, as is being currently pushed, will serve only to thrust us backwards into a state of inequality that will threaten the very existence of the United States. Next week, I will discuss federalism and the slow and dangerous destruction of it. Staying true to the federalism created by our founding documents does more to protect all of us, regardless of political party opinions or desires for how the country moves forward, by allowing state-by-state policymaking to better serve our country's diverse needs and interests. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, stay safe, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2021.